I recently had a discussion with a friend about the latest Roe v. Wade decision. Yeah, we're just jumping right in here. <laughs> for years, she's been actively involved in advocacy and efforts to fight for not just reproductive rights, but for rights, freedoms, and social justice more broadly. This has been her life. And at one point in our discussion, she was distraught. She was weeping and she was sharing how, and I quote her here, we've let our aunts, our mothers, and our grandmothers down. We have failed them. We're a disappointment. Everything they fought for, we just let slip away. I listened with empathy, hearing her grief, but I was troubled by what she was saying about failing our aunts and mothers and grandmothers. Now, it's not always wise for a guy to critique a woman grieving about the loss of her bodily autonomy. So it's not. So I knew I was on really thin ice there, but I was troubled by what she was saying. I was troubled by the way that she was pathologizing herself as having done wrong in this decision outcome. I was troubled by the way she was taking tremendous responsibility for the small-minded choices of politicians. I was troubled by the way she wasn't taking into account the way that our unique democracy, which is shaped by gerrymandering, dehumanizing culture wars, voter disenfranchisement for massive groups of our citizens, Christian nationalism, she, None of this was part of the context of that decision for her. She had all turned it inward. I was troubled by the multi-decade cultural decline that we are experiencing right now in real time. And it's come as a result of bankrupting our financial systems and shipping our livable wage jobs overseas for many of, our, many of those in our population and how we have bankrupted our human capital systems having sent some of the best of who we are off to a two-decade war in impoverished foreign lands. I was just troubled that she took all of these systemic failures, which in my mind contribute to this moment we're living in right now and getting these kinds of absurd, tragic decisions, and she took all that blame and she was putting on herself. I, we have failed our grandmothers, mothers, and aunts. And so I said to her, I hear your anger and heartbreak, but I'm not so sure that you've failed them. For years, you've continued in their legacy of fighting. And it seems to me that a mea culpa right now, some self-blame is not what's needed. What we need instead is a clear-eyed assessment and critique of our political and legal systems of how power is hoarded and weaponized by a few. I could hear her grief, but I refused to join her in her self-blame for a system functioning exactly as it was darkly designed. Now, as we turn, whether or not you agree with, with my challenge of her in that moment, we can talk about that later. That would be a fun conversation. But let's turn toward our biblical story and our biblical character, the demoniac, as he's called. And I find myself thinking similar thoughts. We often pathologize individuals pathologize ourselves rather than asking if this person's behaviors and mental state, if they are instead a symptom of the system's illness. Is the person ill because they're bad or are they ill because they live in an ill system? Is diabetes and obesity purely an individual problem with individual causes or is there a systemic problem like the fact that some populations live in food deserts or maybe their rich and diverse food culture was intentionally destroyed and replaced with government rations of flour, salt, and lard 
as was the case with Native Americans forcibly removed from their rich ecosystems and given these three rations and told you need to live on these now. And so for the next few minutes, I'd like us to exercise our imagination, think about systems, and I want us to do a little time traveling. Imagine with me that this man is not the Gerasene demoniac, the demoniac from uh, Gerasa in ancient Syria, but instead he's just a man or a person like you and me. And we don't find him, as our text says, on the other side of Galilee, which kind of has these on the other side of the tracks feels to it. But instead, we find him in Garassa, USA, today. He's our neighbor. He's here living with us. He isn't the demoniac from a small town in ancient Syria. He's you and me and our neighbor in Garassa, the town next to us. And that's where we find him, as if he were a character in a dystopian movie. He's naked, alone, obvious psychological instability and mental health illness. How did he get to this place where he is, to use some theological language, experiencing a complete crisis of soul? If you look at the worship guide this morning, I included a quote of how I think about soul, and it comes from Dr. Rogers Vaughn, but he said, soul is that fabric that embeds every one of us within all that is. Soul is our existence within the woven living web of humanity and all creation. And that being said, souls do not simply become ill or fail to thrive from within. Instead, they become frayed when the broader fabric in which they exist becomes torn, strained, and destroyed. Is that how our man became naked alone and living in a cemetery? The broader fabric of his society had become frayed, torn, strained, and destroyed. The way Matthew tells the story, he was so violent, it wasn't even safe to pass through the area where he was. The way the Gospel of Mark tells the story, he would cut himself with stones and scream out night and day. Both his soul and the soul fabric of his community was clearly torn, and the only option they had was to try to bind him with chains, and that didn't work. And they had no other options, no other choices. Their divine imagination, that piece of the soul fabric, was also torn. Have you wondered, why does he cut himself? The way Mark tells the story, he cuts himself and he screams out day and night. Imagine living with him on the outskirts of your town. Why this self-harm? If Garassa, USA, the town next to us where he lives, is a typical U.S. town, then one in five people there uh, are intentionally harming themselves at any moment um, higher if you're a teenager, and even higher still, if you're a teenage young woman, girl. But they are trying to cope with the incredible spiritual and mental pain that they are feeling. These feelings often include anger, shame, grief, guilt, and self-hate. These kinds of feelings of which, you know what the medicine is? A robust, healthy community. That's what the medicine would be. But tra tragically, the crisis of soul in our society means that it's becoming harder and harder to find that kind of medicine, this medicine of local community where one deeply knows others and is deeply known by others. That's the medicine needed and the medicine that's missing. And instead, we filled this soul medicine vacuum with social media and consumer goods and bespoke experiences, but it's a poor 
substitute. Maybe like me, you also wonder why he's living among the tombs. What's he doing living in a cemetery? Could be, could be we're using our imagination this morning. It could be that someone he loved, someone who helped hold his world together had died and is buried there in that cemetery. And the soul of his community has so disintegrated that there's no communal rituals anymore to help him mourn and give him a structure, a fabric in which to process tremendous grief, perhaps while having significant mental health challenges. Perhaps there's no permission to suffer well. And so he wanders aimlessly deeper and deeper into the starless no man's land of grief wilderness. Where is his community among the living? To make matters worse, again, if he's like any one of our neighbors in this town, uh, perhaps he wasn't born there. Perhaps he found himself there instead after many moves throughout the years, seeking degrees at various educational institutions or seeking a livable wage job. So you you are forced to move from place to place. And I've, I read, uh, I've read reports from the Federal Reserve and others who says, you know, if you want to get a livable wage job, you have to uproot, uproot yourself from a community and go to where that work is. But there are hundreds of thousands of people going to flock to that one job as well. And they don't really address that or they don't address the fact that um, you have to lose community. You have to lose your soul, I would say. So perhaps he has been hopping around his whole life just looking to make a living, following his career perhaps. And this left him without living, breathing community. I met someone like him one night. I was on call at the hospital. Uh, it's one of the saddest nights I've ever had as a hospital chaplain. An elderly woman followed the ambulance in that brought her husband to the emergency department with chest pains. After 45 minutes of CPR and every possible intervention, the doctor called it. Her husband was gone. I sat with her for the next few hours. And at one point I asked her, who can we call? No one, she said a daughter, a sibling, a friend. Is there anyone I can call? No one. I have no one. We, we followed his career all over the place. It was just us. He was all I had, she said. And soon after that, I carried a white plastic bag with all his belongings. I walked her to her car. I was heartbroken knowing that she was going home to an empty house. She didn't have the spiritual and psychological safety net of a living breathing community and she was dangerously close to being overcome like our man in this story in fact researchers have recently said that loneliness and social isolations they are more dangerous to our health than smoking and obesity they said it's equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of mortality and the impact on our bodies the soul of a community the fabric of a community absolutely matters. We could say that this breakdown of soul is equal to what's been called third order suffering. Go, this is nerdy. Stick with me a few more minutes. Third order suffering. First order suffering, it's categorized as suffering that we experience because we're mortal. We are limited creatures. We all get sick. We all die. We all are not going to fare very well in a tornado or a hurricane. Uh, or a pandemic or, or whatever, first order suffering. Then there's second order suffering. Second order suffering is what we experience because of the injustices and the harm that we caused to one another. A gunman commits a mass shooting. 
a person drives drunk and kills somebody. Uh, the builder for your house didn't build it according to code, so it crashes down. Second order suffering comes because of what we do to each other. But then there is third order suffering as well. Uh, and this is suffering we experience because we have dismantled community. We have dismantled our support systems. They are fraying from neglect or they've been intentionally dismantled or destroyed. And you know what I'm thinking about right now? I'm thinking about President Reagan in the 1980s telling lies about so-called welfare queens so that he could dismantle social safety nets for vulnerable populations. I'm thinking about uh, when Jana led our, our Dig Deep session on immigration and she taught us how immigration was at a 40-year low when this became uh, a hot topic button political tool in 2015. And we made that whole process intentionally more nasty. Uh, I'm thinking of the dismantling of Roe versus Wade. I'm thinking about these third order suffering things where we undo intentionally community and we contribute to suffering of people because we are taking it apart. This is a crisis of our communal soul. Now we could go on giving reasons why someone would find themselves like our man here, naked alone and living among the tombs. Who knows what, what it was? We don't know. These many causes of suffering are, we could say, to use the word from our text, legionists, legions. There's too many of them to name. The name legion in our text refers to a legion or a brigade of 6,000 Roman soldiers occupying, controlling, exploiting, doing whatever their whims so desire, killing the inhabitants. And one of the symbols of these Roman brigades was a pig. <laughs> Remember the swine in the story? It's a pig is one of the symbols of the legions. And so when he says that forces are controlling him and they're named legion, he very well could mean that they are seemingly omnipresent or everywhere, like the Roman occupation was. Uh, they are seemingly omnipotent. They can get away with whatever they want to do. They are seemingly omniscient. They, are, they know everything, it seems. They are legion, meaning everywhere he turns, the system that he's living in is claiming for itself these attributes that truly should belong only to God, but rather than nourishing him into life, they are leaving him naked, alone, and living among the dead. Can you see and hear his hopelessness? He is so hopeless and his crisis of soul is so great that when someone genuinely comes into his orbit, he begs Jesus to leave. What do you have to do with me? And Jesus says, what is your name? And he can't even say his own name anymore. He can't even say the name given to him by community. He can't even say, I am mother, I am son, I am Jet, I am Carissa. Instead, he gives the name that the system has given him. I am Legion, I am Tomb Dweller, I am Cutter. His labels and his diagnosis have become his name, his identity, his being, his everything. And the system doesn't flinch. Jesus doesn't flinch. He looks right in the man's eyes as if he were a person and he sees more than this name given to him by the system. He sees more than someone who lives close to pigs or among the dead or that he's Gentile. All these things that would make him ritually unclean, right? Jesus looks past all of that and he sees a child of God ensnared in a system of dehumanization. Jesus destroys all his categories of who is in and who is out, right? And who is defiled and who is clean. He, we would say 
in Garasa, USA today, he destroyed all the labels of gay or straight or immigrant or citizen or employed or unemployed or Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, Republican, Democrat, libertarian. He destroys all of these labels and looks right past and sees the man. And as a result, the man is set free. A few concluding thoughts on this. First, the townspeople are so freaked out at this man's healing that they beg Jesus to leave. And we have to ask ourselves, why is their system so committed to him being an ill person that they can't stand it when he's whole? That his wholeness is somehow threatening to them. Maybe you can relate. Some of us come from families and communities that box us in, and they are overinvested in us being in that box, us being sick, us being ill, and our growth is threatening to them. It's kind of true what they say. I may be 40 when I'm in my home here today, but I'm 35 when I leave my driveway, and I'm 30 when I get to my hometown, and I'm 25 when I get to my neighborhood, and I'm 20 when I get to the street I grew up on, and then I'm 15 when I get back to my childhood front door. It's hard to break those interpersonal dynamics, that system that expects us to behave in certain ways and doesn't want us to grow and change. And I know this resonates with some of you. I can understand why the man begs Jesus to take him along. But again, doing what I can only call divine here, Jesus doesn't take him along. Jesus sends him back to his community. This is crazy, right? This is my last point. I want you to hear it. Jesus tells the guy to stay. Although he would be living among those who fear his newfound wholeness, Jesus tells the guy to stay as if that one encounter with someone who called forth his Imago day contained enough grace for a lifetime. Jesus tells the guy to stay as if salvation is more than one individual getting free from legion and following him. Salvation involves community. Salvation involves repairing the torn fabric of our interwoven lives. Salvation involves creativity and courage to integrate those that it would rather cast out. Salvation involves going back to a community that thinks a herd of pigs is worth more than one healthy, whole, restored person because they themselves are also profoundly bound by chains. This is beautiful. And I can't help but think about our community here at Peace. We are a decade into our work together. We are a decade into this work of intentional community, of dismantling notions of misogyny and racism and heterosexism and religious fundamentalism and all the other soul-destroying parts of life here in our own Gerasa, USA. And a lot of us have found tremendous freedom. Yes, that's what we want. We, are no, we, we no longer live among the tombs of harmful theology. We're no longer bound by the heavy chains of post-war 1950s evangelicalism. I know that's been freedom I've experienced. But what now? So many of us say, I want to leave. Goodbye. I'm going with Jesus. I'm leaving all you crazies. And when the demons are gone, the man begged Jesus to go with him. But Jesus sent him back saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And here at Peace, as we have done this incredible liberating work with God, may we find a way to stay and continue to do this incredible liberating work in this community 
and in those 36 instances of community that we take with us everywhere we go, believing that freedom will come to all those communities. Amen.